So we're, we're reading today in Genesis 28, which is about Jacob's dream. We're in week three of our series on the life of Jacob, and we're talking about Jacob's dream in Bethel. And so this morning, I decided to get on Reddit and find like a thread about weird dreams. And here's some of my favorites. There was a lot of stuff there. They were very weird, uh, and um, some were quite inappropriate. Uh, but here's some that I've got. Uh, I dreamt that everyone in the world, their heads were waffles, uh, and one of my friends and I were walking down the street and someone took a bite out of the top of his head and he died and we had a funeral for him and I woke up literally crying because of the death of my waffle friend. That's, that's weird. Uh, this one, I don't, I don't know, I like this one. It said, I once dreamed that I was getting my nails done and a sloth was doing my nails and giving me stock tips. <laughs> I don't know, I just thought that was good. Uh, I once had a dream that I was stranded in the middle of the ocean in a small boat with Pinocchio, and all we had to eat were Fruit Loops. And for whatever reason, this dream terrified me, and I woke up in a cold sweat, super scared, and it scared me for years. So this person was traumatized by Fruit Loops and Pinocchio. Um, this was my favorite. Uh, I dreamed that my mom and dad were being arrested, and as they were being arrested, I ran out of the house and began singing the national anthem to the police officers who started crying and stopped arresting my parents and hugged me and left. <laughs> that might actually work if you find a really patriotic uh, police officer that could potentially work. Uh, dreams are weird things. And uh, we're, we're talking about the life of Jacob. We've been looking at Jacob's life and, and, and we know a couple things about Jacob from the first few weeks. One is Jacob's life is filled with conflict. Uh, so from the, very, from, from the time that he was in the womb, he, he has been in conflict, mostly with his brother Esau. Uh, he stole his blessing. He stole his birthright. Now, Jacob has the promise of God. He has the birthright. He has the blessing. But the problem is he's given up everything to get it. And so his brother wants to kill him. He's run away. He's an outcast. He's banished. He's single. He's by himself. He's got no resources. He's got nothing. And he's taken off to this place where he doesn't know where to go. He just wants to get away from his hairy brother who wants to kill him. Right? And so he's taken off. He's run off. And here's where we meet in Genesis 28, verse 10. We'll have those verses on the screen. But if you want a Bible, there's a bunch of Bibles in the back. And we can put a Bible in your hand as well. So, 28 verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put, the, put it under his head and lay down to sleep. So he's, he's banished, he's a fugitive, and he's in this space between right now. Like the place that he's at is not even named. It's interesting, right? He's in between Beersheba and Haran, and he's alone, he's got no protection, he's got nobody walking beside him, but he's in this space between. And I would suggest that sometimes God works his best work in the space between. That it's not when we've arrived somewhere, it's not even when, we're, when we stood somewhere, it's in the season in between. It's in the space between where we've arrived, where we're heading, and where we're going. And sometimes it feels like we're nowhere. Sometimes it feels like we're not in a significant place. We're not in a place where God's working or where God's moving. We're not in a place where, where anything exciting has happened. We're in like this non-place, but this non-place becomes significant. 
And, and what we see this week in the story of Jacob is there's a move from his conflict being all about his brothers and sisters and his family and creation and God's people to his conflict actually existing and his reconciliation of his conflict with God. And here's what we recognize really early in this picture of what's happening with Jacob here in Bethel is that we repair our human relationships in the presence of God. When we have conflict with each other, when we have brokenness in our relationship with one another, the place that that is repaired is in the presence of God. That God is always the one who's reaching out to reconcile and is teaching us to do the same. He's teaching us to lay down everything and go to the person that we need to forgive and seek forgiveness. He's teaching us to, to, to tear down the walls. The, the people of God are always the ones who take the first step towards reconciliation, who take the first step towards forgiveness, who take the first step in reaching out a hand of peace and love and kindness and generosity and say, let's move towards making this right. And the way that we figure out how to do that is in the presence of God. Because let's be truthful, in the presence of people, people are annoying, right? In the presence of people, especially when there's brokenness and pain, there is this feeling of there's a mess here and I don't know how to repair it and I don't know how to fix it and I don't know what it looks like for me to reach out the olive branch, but in the presence of God, we begin to see what reconciliation really looks like because we serve a God who's a reconciling God. God models the way in forgiveness by being the one who forgives our greatest debts to him first. And as he models that way, we begin to see a new life. And so Jacob has this dream. And we can write this dream off to like, this is a primitive story from a primitive, primitive religion. Like things like this don't happen anymore. Uh, uh, that God doesn't speak this way anymore. We can write it off to like psychological babble, right? This is just, uh, we can deny the objective reality of God and that God speaks to men or that God still communicates. But the writer of this story insists that this happens. And I would say that I've seen this happen over and over again. We have people in our congregation who will come to me all the time with dreams and visions and words from the Father, things that he's told them, things that he's shared. I love it when I get an email from somebody from the church that just says, hey, here's some things that God's been saying to me recently. I wanna share them with you. Here's some encouragement. Here's some ways that I think God is leading us. Here's some ways that God is working in my family and in my life. It's, it's this declaration of we wanna hear from God and as we hear from him, we move into culture and we move into the world, but we don't move into that alone. We move into that while we listen and discern where God is leading. So verse 12, it says, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching all the way to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and there above it stood the Lord. So he's got this picture of like this escalator that starts right ground zero, starts right where he's standing in Bethel, and floats all the way up to heaven. And on the escalator, there's both an up and down going, and what we see is angels moving up and down, ascending and descending, moving back and forth from heaven, and at the top of it is where God stands. And what we see in this is we see amazing picture. And this is so, imagine that you're Jacob in this moment. So imagine what Jacob is feeling. He's feeling like I'm alone. I've got no resources. 
I've been abandoned, I've been banished, I'm an outcast, I've made the wrong choices, I've got this promise that's been given to me, but I have no idea how to claim it, I have no idea how to live into it, I think there's this full and abundant and good life that's available to me, but I don't know how to get it, and the only way I know how to get things is by deceiving and cheating and stealing, that's the only way I know how to live, and so I've gotta fight for everything that I have, I've gotta grab and take and win and coerce every single situation, and here is the picture that he gets. The resources of heaven are moving back and forth between you and heaven. All of the resources at God's disposal are active and working and moving. There are moments in our life when we can feel abandoned. There are moments in our life when we can feel alone. There are moments in our life when we can be tempted to believe that there's not enough. There's not enough resources. There's not enough time. There's not enough people. There's not enough whatever. There's not enough things. And, and what we see in this picture is God declaring through this vision, no, 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 no. The resources of heaven are working. They're moving. You have not been abandoned here on earth. God is not a distant deity who is far away and who is not working on your behalf. I see you, I know you, and I'm working on this situation. Jacob, you are not alone. Which I believe is incredibly good news, not just for Jacob, but for us today. That whatever we're facing, whatever challenges are in front of us, whatever difficulty we see, whatever is, it seems like it's impossible right now, the resources of heaven are at our disposal. God is working. The angels are ascending and descending. God is always present and at work. If there's one thing that we can name that's so significant from Genesis 28, it is that God is not passive, that God is not waiting for us, that God is not um, in love with a future version of us, and that when we get it figured out, he will work. The picture is God is present and at work even when we don't see it or don't know it, even when we don't comprehend it, even when we don't understand why we're in this season, even if we don't understand why we're in this place that we are, even when we're living in the space between, God is present and at work. And here's the beautiful thing. God is fully and completely present in a decisive way to the exiled one. God does not meet Jacob when Jacob is at his best. He meets him when he's at his worst. He doesn't meet Jacob when Jacob like decides, I'm gonna go to Bethel and I'm gonna do a big worship service and I'm gonna preach a sermon and I'm gonna fast for 40 days and I'm gonna pray that God will show up and I'm gonna beg him to do something. He meets him while he's taking a nap on a stone when he doesn't know where he's going and he hasn't asked God for anything. We have this belief that God meets us when we're at our best. And I want you to know that God meets us when we're at our worst. That God meets us in our places of need. He meets us in our places of brokenness. He meets us in our place of hurting. And there's this beautiful picture here that the sovereign God of heaven tethers himself to a deceptive, manipulative fugitive and says, you are mine. 
And whenever we're tempted to believe that God doesn't receive us, doesn't accept us, doesn't love us, doesn't meet us where we are, or that we've got to clean ourselves up for him to meet us, we can look at this picture of Jacob the deceiver and see that God meets us where we are. Romans 8:38 says this, for I am convinced that neither life nor death, angels nor demons, present or future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That means this, that you can't even separate yourself from God. There is nothing that you can do to earn his favor or to lose his favor. Think about the worst moment in your life when you were, the, when you were, like, you were your worst self, right? You did the worst thing. You were having a terrible day, right? Everything was going wrong. In that moment, God is present and at work. Think about yourself when you were super holy, right? You were giving all your money to the poor. You were helping old ladies cross the street. You were giving hugs to strangers. You were praying for weird people, right? You were doing all kinds of crazy holy things. God didn't love you any more in that moment, and he doesn't love you any less in that moment. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That's true for Jacob, and that's true for us. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from, the God, from, from God. And this dream is not a morbid review of Jacob's past, right? God doesn't meet him in this space where he says, all right, Jacob, I'm going to give you a dream of all the ways you screwed up your life. The dream is a picture of God's goodness. Like, how good is that? Sometimes what we don't understand is how God meets us in our sin, how God meets us in our badness. And I would suggest that one of the most important things about us is the God that we know when we blow it. Who is God to us when we fail? Who is God to us when we mess up? Is it a God who is screaming at you, who is telling you the rules again, who is disappointed in you, who is frustrated with you? Or is he the God that says, I know that there is a ton of bad news at work in your life, but here's the good news. The ladders to heaven and earth are working and I am bigger than any problem that you face. I'm bigger than any sin that you've committed. I'm bigger than any failure that you've, uh, you've, you've accomplished in your life and I am right here with you now at your worst. That is the God that meets us in our sin. And what he does for us is he reveals the bad news, he shows us the good news, and gives us an alternative future. What Jacob sees in this moment is an alternative future. I don't have to be the deceiver anymore. I don't have to be the cheater anymore. I don't have to be in conflict with everybody. I don't have to earn and strive and achieve and coerce because the powers of heaven are working for me and so I don't have to do it. It's already been done. God is working on my behalf. That is incredibly good news. I, we, we need to get a little more amens going here this morning, guys. I, come on now. This is so powerful for Jacob and for us. All right, so here's the promise that God gives. So God gives this promise. He says, I am the Lord your God, the father of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out from the west to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. Up to this point, this promise is the same promise given to Abraham. All right, so this is the same as the promise that God gave to Abraham and gave to Isaac, and now he's giving it to Jacob. The promise is, I'm gonna bless you. The promise is, you're gonna become the father of many nations. The promise is, you're gonna bless others. Others are gonna be blessed 
through you. And the promise is, I'm going to take care of you. But here's where this passage really gets beautiful. God adds to the promise. Now, like this is, this is amazing, right? God doesn't add to the promise to Abraham and Isaac, who are super holy and super great. He adds to the promise to Jacob, who's a mess. So think about the garden. In the garden, God's people are cast out of the garden because they made a mistake. God's people are pushed away because they ate from the fruit of the tree. Because they sinned and fell short of the glory of God, they were cast out of that space. Here's what God's doing for Jacob. He's, he's adding to the promise. Here's what he says. I am with you. Completely alone, completely abandoned, banished, fugitive, sinner, deceiver. God says, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. So we have a recapturing of Abraham's promise, but then there's these three parts that are added to the promise. The first is this, I am with you. I'm with you. It's a recapitulation of the garden. So in the garden, God walked with his people. In the garden, God was with his people. In the garden, it says they walked in the cool of the evening and they spent time together and they communed together. And here's what he's saying. I am still with you. And this is what's beautiful. I'm not just with you in the garden when everything's great. I'm with you in the space between. I'm with you regardless of your character. I'm with you when you're an outcast. I'm with you when you're a fugitive. This is an amazing revelation of God. I am with you when you are not at your best. The promise is not dependent on your ability to keep it. I'm going to keep both sides of the promise. My, my little one was sitting up here on the front row. She's, she's eight years old. And there are times when she just needs to be with daddy. Does that make sense? There are times when she'll be scared. She'll be frustrated. She'll, I don't, she'll just want to cuddle, right? And there's times where just being in the presence of her father gives her peace. This being with brings peace. Yesterday, we were sitting on the, on the back porch of our house. It was, it was uh, Derby de Mayo, right? Which is probably why nobody's here today. Um, but, uh, but Derby de Mayo, and, and so we were watching the Kentucky Derby. We lived in Kentucky for a long time, and so the Derby, I know it's not a big deal for anybody in Atlanta, but it's super fun. Uh, and so we were watching the Derby and hanging out, and she just crawled up and just put her arm on my shoulder and just laid down. And as a father, like, that's all I want, Right? My, my 16-year-old son doesn't do that. It'd be weird, right? My 13-year-old my son doesn't do that. Like it's awkward to hug them. I, I'm like trying to teach them that, hey, guys, we're going to be huggers, and you're going to deal with it, right? So when I embrace you, you, here's what you do. You put your arms around your father also, right? You don't stand like this. Uh, I'm trying to teach him these things. But, but there's this beautiful thing for me as a dad to be in the presence of my child. And there's this beautiful thing for her to be in the presence of her father. This is what God is saying is I am present. I am with you. You can lean back into my loving arms and find that I'm good. And that I'm right there to meet you. This is incredibly good news. 
so the presence of God has the power to overcome our fears. The presence of God shows us the possibility of what could be. And the presence of God delivers protection and provision for us when we're in need. All of our conflict is resolved in the presence of God. When we don't know what to do, we go to the Father. When we don't know where to turn, we lean in. When we don't know what's next, we lean in. When we failed, when we've not accomplished what we want to accomplish, we lean in. The second part of the promise, if the first part of the promise is about presence, the second part of the promise is about action. It says, I will keep you. So I will be with you, and I will keep you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back to the land. I will be like a shepherd that protects you. Uh, he's alone. And as he's alone, he needs someone to protect him. He needs someone to take care of him. Uh, remember, remember Cain and Abel? So in, in, in the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Cain kills his brother, and God says to him, what have you done? And he says this, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And here's what God's doing. Like, this is so amazing. The gospel is so beautiful. The story of God is this beautiful picture of God putting his family back together again through Jesus. And it's a recapitulation of everything that's broken being made whole and being made new. And so what was broken in this story of, are you my keeper? God says, no, I'll be your keeper. I will keep you. How incredible is that? Like, I will be your keeper. I will protect you. I will walk beside you. And he's saying to him, I've got you. The last part of the promise is I will bring you home. So um, imagine you're an outcast. Imagine you're banished from your home. Imagine your family hates you. Imagine your hairy brother wants to kill you, right? Imagine all of these things. Good news for Jacob is home. It's that home is available for an exile. That's incredibly good news. I, I read the story once of a famous pastor whose son went off to a Christian college and just decided he was going to start rebelling. It's what a lot of us do in college. And so he went off to college and, and just started doing his own thing and started living his own life and, and kind of living in a way that was so contrary to the way he had been raised. And his father was this kind of well-known celebrity pastor who everybody knew. And, and the day came where he got a call from the dean of students and they kicked him out. They said, we've had enough of your behavior. We've given you a free pass over and over again because you're dad, but no more. You're done. We're, you're, you're out. And so the son realized, man, I, I've got to call dad. I've got to call dad, and I've got to tell him I've been kicked out of school. I've got to tell him what I did. I've got to tell him all the things that I did wrong. And, and he realized this. He, he recognized, like, this is going to look really bad for my father, the bloggers are going to start writing blogs about how if he can't take care of his own family, how can he take care of the church? Social media is going to catch on to this, and it's going to become a scandal, and it's going to become a big deal, and, and my dad is going to be shamed because of my behavior. And so he started coming up with all of the different stories to tell his dad when his dad was driving to pick him up. And he said, those two hours between when I called dad and said, I got to come home, and when he showed up were horrifying for me. Because I thought my dad was going to walk in the door, guns blazing, and tell me how I'd shamed the family and how I messed everything up. And, and, and he said, he, he, he sat in his dorm room, head down, and when his father walked in, his father walked to him, wrapped his arms around him, and said, let's go home. This is the God that meets us on the other end of our badness. The God that says, home is always available to you. 
no matter how far you've run, no matter how much of a prodigal you've become, no matter where you've run to, no matter what you did last weekend, no matter how many relationships you've ruined, no matter how many second chances you've been given, he is the God who loves to rescue you and bring you home. Amen. That would have been a good one. That would have been a good spot right there. I'm just helping you guys out. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, uh, verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Isn't that amazing? This beautiful picture. Might I suggest that this is the greatest realization that any of us can receive? Is that there is a move from there are sacred places where God is at work and then there's secular places where God is not at work. Right? So we have this belief in our culture that as we're gathered this morning, God's at work. Right? The Holy Spirit's moving. The ladders of heaven are ascending and descending on our behalf because we gathered together here at Grace Marietta and because we're singing some songs and because I'm teaching about the Bible, God is at work and this is a sacred space. But when we go to lunch at Sinbad's, whatever, right, then, then God's not at work. It's, it's, we've moved from a sacred place to a secular place, and the presence of God is not available to us. The presence of God is not working. The presence of God is not moving. I want you to know that this tears this down completely. He says, I didn't know you were here, but you were here all along. If we are to become spiritually mature, spiritual maturity for us is a longing for the presence of God. It's, it's chasing God and realizing that the presence of God is always at work. It's me awakening to the awareness of God's presence. It's not that God showed up. So we make this statement, right? Sometimes we have a really good church service. Tyler sings some good songs and I don't preach too long. And we say, God showed up. God showed up, right? Can I break this to you? It's not that God showed up. It's that we showed up. It's that we awoken our own selves to his presence. God is not not present, and it's that we're not aware of it. And so there is an awakening that happens inside of us that says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. In your cubicle this week, as you're frustrated with your coworker, God is present and at work. When you're driving at 6 a.m. to the bus stop and your child is crying, um, maybe, these, maybe this is just me. Uh, <laughs> God is present and at work. When your neighbor is frustrated with you, God is present and at work. When you meet that waiter or waitress at Sinbad's, God is present and at work. He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He does not stop working. He's always at work. The question is, if we're going to become spiritually mature, we become aware of his presence and we respond to it. Guys, the hope of, our, of Grace Marietta is not that we awaken to the presence of God on Sunday mornings and we get more butts in the seat. It's that we awaken to the presence of God in our everyday lives. Like, I love it that we get together and we spend a couple hours with God. I'd love it if we were communing and present with God every moment of our lives. And we, became, we started to realize more and more and more, he's in this place and I didn't even know it. Is there a place in your life where you don't feel like God's present and working? Is there a place in your life where you feel like God is absent? Is there a place in your life where you feel like I've just run too far? I want you to know the good news of this passage is God is there and you don't even know it. He's present and at work and the ladder, the stairway to heaven 
is active on your behalf. There is no better place than the presence of God. Psalm says better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And so what we become as we awaken to the presence of God. Yesterday, our, uh, I, I, I've been coaching basketball and our team is terrible. Um, we lost our first game. I'm not exaggerating by this. No one, no one repeat this to my son who's playing on the team, all right? None of the youth group kids are in here so I can tell this story. We lost our first game by 100 points. Yeah, I, I promise you. 100 points, 100 points. They are terrible, right? They are so bad. They are so bad. Uh, we have not won a game all year. And yesterday, we won our first game. Yeah, come on. Caden played great, too. Uh, but we won our first game. And listen, we won this game. And after the game, uh, I kind of just thought I was, I was at, we were at Osborne High School, which is falling apart, right? We are in the dumpiest gym that smelled really bad. They, they had mixed messages on their mascots. I don't, Osborne has like seven mascots. There's like cardinals and warriors and O's and like there's, a, I don't know that Osborne knows who their mascot actually is. Sorry for any Osborne people. Um, but we're in this gym and I'm just like, hey, we're just, this is just basketball, right? This is, it's Derby de Mayo and this is basketball day and this is what's happening. And after that game, all of those boys that I've been coaching for the last three months came up and started hugging me. And you know what I realized? The presence of God is in this place and I didn't even know it. What I've been doing as I coach basketball is a holy and a sacred and a beautiful thing. And God is using it to break down walls. God is using it to develop unity and relationships and to allow me to have a space to speak into these young men's life even when we stink. Verse 18, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone, he placed it under his head, he set up a pillar and poured oil on the lamp on top of it and he called this place Bethel though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow and said this. Now listen to the vow. This is interesting because Jacob's still got a little deceiver in him because read the first word of his vow, if. Right? So Jacob is still trying to negotiate with God. Like, hey, if you do this, God, then I'll do this. Because you gotta understand, God has given Jacob the promise, but Jacob has never responded to the promise in any way. So there has been a covenant from God's side, but nothing from Jacob's side. And so Jacob's still got this if in him, if, but he says, if God will be with me and will watch over me on the journey that I'm taking, will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so I will return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Here's what happens. We grow in our promises. We grow in our ability to trust him. We grow from moving to, if you do this, I'll do this, God. You know how we negotiate God? We hustle God, right? If you heal my dad, I will never sin again, right? If you move in this way, I will do this. We move from hustling him, we're creating the ifs, to growing in our faith and trust in who he is and what he's doing. So Bethel becomes the place where we're given a choice to choose our old world of fear, and our old world of shame and guilt and striving where we can trust in the promises of God. It's a beautiful place where we didn't know God was there. So we awaken to the reality that God is present and at work. We awaken to the reality that God was with me all along. We awaken to the reality that God doesn't simply want me to go to church and follow some rules, but he wants a covenant relationship. We awaken to the fact that God is redefining his relationship with his people based on his goodness and not our own goodness. 
There's this uh, phrase that we use in the church often that is God can't be in the presence of sin. Can I just tell you something? That is absolute rubbish. It is 100% nonsense, and it is a lie from the pits of hell. If God can't be in the presence of sin, then why does he find Jacob? If God can't be in the presence of sin, then why does his son Jesus, who is the revelation of him, get in trouble over and over and over again for eating and dining and hanging out with sinners? God is not weak enough that he has like a kryptonite that's sin. That's nonsense. God is always reaching out his hands to those who have run from him. He's always reaching out to meet us in our sin and in our brokenness. God doesn't love a future version of you that gets it all figured out any more than he loves you right now. And the promise is available to us in our sin and in our greatest moments. It's always available to us. So here's the promise that that God gave. The promise he gave to, to Jacob is, I will be with you. I'm going to be with you, I will keep you, and I will bring you home. And so today we're going to kind of take communion, we're going to move to the altars, and, and we just receive the bread and the juice and remember who God is and what he's done. But as you do that today, I want you to really think about which of those three promises is the hardest for you to believe. Is it that God's with you? Is it that he will keep you and protect you? Or is it that he'll give you a new home? Which of those three are the hardest for you to believe right now? And as you come to the altar and remember the price that Christ paid on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled with God, we come recognizing that God desires for us to to receive his promises. That the promise of Jacob is the same promise that's given to every single one of us today, and it's incredibly good news. And so let's come to the table, let's receive, and let's understand that God is good. And, and, and here's the thing, I, I, I really believe this today. I've been praying about this all morning. I've gone too long, I apologize, but here's the thing. I think there's somebody in here who's never received this love of God. I think there's somebody in here who has never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, who's never said, your way is better than my way, who's never received the promise in the way that Jacob did. Maybe you've heard the promises. Maybe you've heard that there's good news available, but you thought maybe it's just not available to me. I've run too far, or I've done too much, or or I'm not good enough to receive this promise. And I want you to know this passage today clearly says, no, the promise is for you. The promise is for the deceivers. The promise is for the sinners. The promise is for the outcasts. The promise is for the fugitives. The promise is for all of us. And it's God's promise that I will be with you. I will keep you, and I will give you a new reality, a new home, a new blessing that's more beautiful than anyone you could ever imagine. So we've got a prayer team that's gonna be in the back who would love to pray with you, who would love to talk to you about what a relationship with this Jesus looks like and how you can receive that promise for yourself today. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna move into communion. Remember, go, come, come to this altar today just saying, Lord, I, I need you to uh, help my unbelief, right? I, I want to believe that you're with me. I want to believe that you'll keep me. I want to believe that home is available. But help me when I don't believe. And I pray that today our faith grows just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little increase of our trust. Maybe that if you do this goes away and it becomes, I'm going to do this, God. 
So Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for this beautiful passage that declares the good news that you meet us in our sin, that you meet us in our brokenness, that you meet us in Bethel, and you say to us, the promise is still available to you. And so today, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this place and we would just experience your goodness for a few minutes. That we would just receive your grace and your mercy and your love. And we would be able to walk forward from this place with just a little bit more faith. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you have overcome our sin and our death and met it with resurrection and reconciliation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.